Perfect Stranglers contains graphic and explicit content suitable for mature listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Perfect Stranglers. <laughs> My name is Kylie. Bree, I have a question for you. First off, introduce yourself to the kids. Yeah, I'm Bree. It's me. Okay. Do you have... Um, a uh, fire alarm that needs a battery? Yes. It's so annoying. You can hear that? Barely. Like every every like two minutes. Oh my God. Yeah. I can hear it. <laughs> oh my God. I bet sure our listeners can hear it too. Just did it. Yeah. Oh yeah. They for sure can hear it. Can you like yeah. take it out? <laughs> yes. Okay. I will. Okay, fire fire hazard fixed. Right. All right, guys. So we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of stuff to get into today regarding Bree's um, episode. And normally I'd be like, hey, let's banter on what's going on in your life. But I know nothing. I know enough about this case to like know it's a big deal. I know nothing, and you know everything, and I'm very excited. So I want to just like get right to okay. it. Okay. Cool. So housekeeping. We don't want you to forget to like and rate our podcast on apple podcasts and also spotify now please give us that five star rating and give us a review it helps us it helps people find us and also please don't forget to subscribe to us on whatever platform you listen to us all on so that you never miss an episode and we want to hear from you on our social media we have facebook instagram and twitter and we also have a website perfectstranglers.com and we want to, uh, in addition, we want to hear your stories of weird, true things that have happened to you. So please email us at contact at perfectstranglers.com. I just had like a holy crap moment of, oh my God, we're good at this. Like we just like, you remember how we used to take forever to like get ready and now we just like plug and go and we just like know yep. what we're doing. I love it. It's nice. I love it. Two years later. I mean, almost two years. Yeah. So this is my actual favorite murder i guess you could say uh it's it's the case that got me really interested in true crime and today we are talking about charles manson (laughs) um and the manson family to some extent so in this episode we're going to be laying out the background of charles manson uh like what events in his childhood created the monster he became what in his history led to him becoming a dangerous cult leader. And I think that you will find in this episode that it's going to inform you about Manson from a perspective that's seldom told uh, from his childhood, because most Manson stories start with the hippies in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So I love I love a childhood perspective. I hate when we talk about serial killers and their childhood isn't discussed, because it is so important to understand the childhood and what got them to where they are yeah there's no question about it he had an awful childhood Mm. so uh charles manson was born in ohio 1934 to a 16 year old single mother uh his father was a local con man named colonel walker henderson scott jr from kentucky colonel was his given name and he led charles's mother kathleen to believe that he was an actual army colonel Yeah, so uh, when she told him that she was pregnant, he told her that he had been called away on army business. 
uh, and he never returned from this fake army business trip. A few months before Charlie's birth, his mother uh, remarried uh, a man named Eugene Manson, who worked uh, as a dry cleaner. Charles never knew his real father, and, you know, he obviously had skipped town before he was born, and his uh, mother ha had Charlie's last name as Manson, the last name of the man she'd married just before Charlie's birth. So, three years uh, later, this marriage ended in divorce. Charlie's mom would um, leave young Charles Manson, three, four years old, uh, in the care of multiple babysitters while she went uh, on binge drinking sprees with her brother, Luther. Uh, when Charles was five years old, his mother and uncle Luther were charged with robbery and went to prison, and Charles was placed in the care of his aunt and uncle in West Virginia at, uh, for four years. When his mother was released from prison on parole in 1942, Charles went back to his mom and he characterized these first few weeks back with his mom as the happiest of his life. Mm -hmm. While back in his mother's household, he continually skipped school and his mother went back to drinking heavily. His mom moved them to Indianapolis where she met and married a man um, that she met in her Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. Um, Charles had a troubled and dysfunctional childhood as you can see. And he set his school on fire when he was nine years old. He got in trouble for truancy and petty theft. And he was placed in a Catholic school for boys in Terre Haute, uh, Indiana, at the age of 13. It was a very strict school run by Catholic priests, and they doled out corporate punishment for the smallest of infractions. They'd get beat with a wooden paddle or a leather strap. Oh my god. Uh, Yeah. Charles ran away from this school and slept in the woods or under bridges. He somehow found his way home from Terre Haute um, to his mother's home in Indianapolis, which is about 77 miles away, so I'm assuming he hitchhiked or hopped a bus or train or something. Yeah. Um, and he spent Christmas 1947 at his aunt and uncle's house, and then his mother returned him to the boys' school in Terre Haute. Ten months later, he ran away from the school again, and he fled back to Indianapolis and robbed a grocery store. At first, the intent was to just rob the grocery store for something to eat, mm -hmm. but then he found a cigar box behind the counter containing over $100, and he used it to rent a room in Indianapolis's Skid Row and to buy food. Charles tried to live uh, on the straight and narrow for a while, earning an honest living, delivering messages for Western Union, but he quickly went back to his old ways of petty theft to supplement his wages. Uh, when he was eventually caught, he was sent to a juvenile facility in Omaha, Nebraska uh, when he was 15 or 16. And after only four days at this facility, he and another fellow student inmate um, at the school, the reform school escaped and stole a gun and a car. Charles and the other boy, whose name was Blackie Nelson, used this gun to commit two armed robberies while um, on their way to um, Nielsen's uncle's house in Peoria, Illinois, in the car they stole. So Blackie Nielsen's uncle in Peoria was a professional thief and took the boys on as apprentices. Two weeks later, Charles was arrested during a late night raid of a store in Peoria and he was also linked to two armed robberies that he and Blackie had committed on their way to Peoria. 
Um, he was then sent to Indiana Boys School, where he was beaten and allegedly raped by other students. He ran away from the Indiana Boys School 18 times. He began to develop a self-defense technique, which he called the insane game, where he would screech, grimace, and wave his arms wildly to attempt to convince aggressors that he was insane when he was physically unable to defend himself. Oh my god. Yeah. After failing to escape many times from the boys' school, he finally succeeded in February of 1951, along with two other boys. The three boys robbed gas stations and attempted to drive to California using stolen cars um, when they were uh, caught and arrested in Utah. Charles was charged with a federal crime of stealing a stolen car um, and driving across state lines, and he was sent to Washington, D.C.'s training school for boys. He was given a series of tests when he arrived at this school and it was determined that Charles was illiterate. However, he had an above average IQ of 109. Okay. Uh, he, he was also deemed to be aggressively antisocial. Wait, so his IQ was above average at 109? That's what they said for a for his age, I guess. And how old is, was he I don't he know how point? IQs work. How old is he at this point? Uh, about 16 or 17. Okay, so I'm thinking Ed Kemper's IQ at that age was 140 when he was 19. Mm-hmm. That's insane. I, I don't know, like, I got, I don't really know a lot about IQs. Like, I don't know what's, like, a super, super smart, what's average, what's below average. The average IQ is... Okay, so nowadays... An average, what is considered genius, an average IQ score is between 85 and 115. 68% of IQ scores fall within one standard deviation of the mean. That means that the majority of people have an IQ score between 85 and 115. Okay. Okay, sure. Um, so later that same year, at the recommendation of a psychiatrist, Charles was transferred to a different facility that was a minimum security institution. Um, Charles was 18 at the time and had a parole hearing, um, scheduled for February 1952, and his aunt, who frequently visited him, um, hoped he had a good chance of getting out as he would, um, or as she would tell the administrators when she would visit the facility that she would let Charles stay with her and she would help him find work, um, if he got out. Um, yeah. He didn't get out, though, because a month before his parole hearing, he was caught raping a boy at knife point and transferred to the Federal Reformatory in Petersburg, Virginia, where he got into even more trouble with fellow prisoners, um, which resulted in him being moved to a maximum security reformatory in Ohio, where he was set to stay until his 21st birthday in November of 1955. Oh, my God. Uh, he was released in 1954 due to good behavior and he lived with his aunt and uncle until he got on his feet so in, in january 1955 charles married a woman named rosalie jean willis he and his new wife moved um out to los angeles using a car that he had stolen in ohio um about three months after they arrived the, uh, in la charles was charged with another federal crime for stealing the car that they came to la in he was given five years probation but it was later revoked because he um, failed to appear at a hearing that, um, and he was sentenced to three years imprisonment, leaving his wife, who was now pregnant, alone. While he was in prison, Rosalie 
had his son, Charles Manson Jr., um, and during his first year in prison in California, his wife, Rosalie, and his mother would visit him regularly. They, his wife and mother lived together in L.A., um, and when Rosalie stopped seeing him in 1957, he was informed by his mother that she was living with another man. Um, the next year, Charles was um, out on parole, and he and Rosalie had gotten a divorce by then. Charles had started pimping a 16-year-old girl and also received money from another girl who had wealthy parents. In 1959, Charles was in legal trouble yet again after he pleaded guilty to forging and attempting to cash a U.S. treasury check, which he said that he stole from a mailbox. He received probation and a 10-year suspended sentence for this crime after a young woman with a record for sex work named Leona made a tearful plea in front of the court that said that she, um, she said she and Manson were deeply in love and that if Charlie were freed that she would marry him and she actually did marry him less than a year later possibly so she wouldn't be required to testify against him in a court of law. Charles was detained and questioned for violating the Mann Act um, that's M-A-N-N the Mann mm -hmm. Act when he took Leona and another woman to Mexico um, for the purposes of prostitution. The Mann Act, which was passed in 1910, made it a felony to engage in interstate or foreign commerce transport of any woman or girl for a purpose of prostitution, debauchery, or for any other immoral purpose. Uh, it was introduced to address prostitution, and immorality, and human trafficking, and uh, although he had been questioned about violating the Mann Act, he was let go, and he correctly assumed that uh, an investigation into him was not over, and he went on the run, and he failed to check in for his probation, and a bench warrant was issued for his arrest in addition to an indictment for the violation of the Mann Act. Following the arrest of one of the women, um, Charles was located and arrested in Laredo, Texas in June of 1960, and he was returned to L.A. In L.A., he was ordered to serve his 10-year suspended sentence for the check-catching fraud case um, as a result of violating his probation. He spent the first year of his incarceration unsuccessfully trying to appeal um, the re revocation of his uh, probation in uh, and in July of 1961, he was transferred from the L.A. County Jail to the United States Penitentiary at McNeil Island, Washington, where he took guitar lessons and participated in hypnosis sessions along with fellow prisoner Danny Trejo. Ooh. Yeah. I forgot that they were in prison at, for a short time together. Mm-hmm. So the Man Act charge was dropped as Charles continued to serve his sentence for the federal check uh, cashing debacle. Um, mm -hmm. In 1963, uh, while Charles was still in prison, his wife Leona was granted a divorce. And in June 1966, Charles was transferred back to a facility in California in preparation for early release. Um, and Charles was released on March 21st, 1967, he was 32 years old, and he had spent more than half of his life in correctional institutions. 
he told the guards that prison had become his home and he requested permission to stay, which of course was denied, uh, less than a month after his release from prison. Charles moved from L.A. to Berkeley, uh, which is in Northern California, without permission from his probation officer, mm-hmm. which could have been a probation violation, but since he called the San Francisco probation office upon his arrival, he was instead um, transferred to the supervision of Roger Smith, a federal probation officer and doctoral researcher of criminology. Uh, so... This guy seems like a capable person to keep an eye on Charles Manson. However, I personally believe that this was one small decision that affected the rest of the entire story of Charles Manson's life. Mm -hmm. Um, The reason that I say this is because Roger Smith worked in the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic along with the clinic's founder, um, David E. Smith. This clinic was... It received funding from the National Institutes of Health um, to study the effects of drugs like LSD and meth on the counterculture movement in Haight-Ashbury. Charles uh, and the other patients at the free clinic became subjects of this research, and many of the patients of this clinic became members of the Manson family. So it's here in the free clinic where he took LSD for the first time, And his personality started to change now that he was out of prison, living among the hippies in the Haight-Ashbury district. Roger Smith stated that the change in Manson's personality during this time was the most abrupt change that he had observed in his entire professional career. Charles began preaching his own philosophies, which he cobbled together based on a mixture of the Bible, Scientology, the sci-fi novel, Stranger in a Strange Land, Dale Carnegie books, and the music of the Beatles. Um, His interesting theologies, embellished with pop culture, helped him quickly gain a following. So, his first follower was a librarian on the UC Berkeley um, campus. Uh, She was a 23-year-old woman named Mary Brunner. So, Mary Brunner was actually from Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Ooh. Yeah, and she moved um, out to California. Uh, Okay, so Charles talked Mary into letting him stay at her house for a few nights, uh, but that arrangement became more permanent than temporary. Yeah. Um, He also met Lynette, a.k.a. Squeaky Fromm, who is one of the more well-known... the Manson family members, and she met Charlie early on up in San Francisco when she was a teenage runaway, and she lived with Charlie and Mary Brunner. Um, he basically preyed on vulnerable people who were emotionally insecure and who were social outcasts who wanted to belong to something. He was very confident and charismatic, and he attracted a decent following. He would lead group LSD trips where he would take less acid than everyone else to keep his wits about him mm-hmm. and attempt to reprogram these people to submit to his will using both the effect of the acid and, quote, unconventional sexual practices. Hmm. Um, 
by the end of his time spent in the Haight-Ashbury district in San Francisco, he had about 20 followers who would do these acid trips with him. Um, the core group of followers who stuck with him were Tex Watson, Bobby Beausoleil, Mary Brenner, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten. In July of 1968, uh, the Manson family moved from, with permission from the probation officer, moved from San Francisco to L.A. During the move, Charles crashed the bus, it was a VW bus, um, mm-hmm. crashed the VW bus into a ditch and police made contact with him after seeing this. And they were all uh, just sleeping naked in the bus when the police Ew, arrived. Oh, how stinky was that? Right? Including the newborn baby, which was a baby of Charles and Mary Brunner's. Uh, <sighs> really? Yeah. God. Yeah. How stinky. So, at this time, Susan Atkins was also pregnant. I am not sure if that was actually Charlie's baby or not. But um, Charles Manson has several children, uh, so there is Manson DNA still out in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you imagine finding out that you're a Manson? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm pretty sure, like, the first one with his wife, I'm not sure, you know, but the second one, this, the Mary Brunner's baby, was like, like, grew up in, for, you know, his younger childhood grew up in the cult. Yeah. So, he knew. Um, so, Charlie's rules were that the babies would be everyone's responsibility. Anytime the family got arrested, though, the children always um, showed signs of extreme neglect. The Manson family actually has a connection with the Beach Boys. Dennis Wilson, the drummer of, for the Beach Boys, um, before he died, he, which... Side note, he did not die at the hands of the Manson family. He died in alcohol-related drowning in the 80s. Yeah. Um, so Dennis Wilson, from the Beach Boys, picked up two female hitchhikers while driving along the Pacific Coast Highway one day. And these hitchhikers were Patricia Krenwinkel and Ella Jo Bailey, both Manson girls. He took them back to his house, and they got it on. And then, like a dumbass um dennis wilson leaves them alone in his house when he goes to a recording session so when he got back to his house the rest of the manson family had arrived and made themselves comfortable just moved themselves in um charles manson introduced himself to dennis by kissing his feet and i don't know if that was literally or figuratively ew uh but anyway, yeah. he charmed Dennis Wilson, and the Manson family stayed there uh, a while because it was a mutually beneficial relationship for a while. Charles had the girls and the drugs, which interested uh, interested did Dennis, <laughs> and Dennis had money and music, um, music business connections, which interested Charles as he thought of himself as an aspiring singer-songwriter. Of course. Uh, yes. One of the connections that Dennis Wilson had in the music industry was a man named Terry Melcher, who was the son of Doris Day. He was a music producer, and Dennis introduced Charles to Terry Melcher, 
and Charles played some of his music for Terry, and Terry was not impressed. The The Beach Boys actually recorded a song uh, that Charlie had originally written and sang himself, but they made a few tweaks to it. Charles's version of the song was called Cease to Exist, and the Beach Boys version of the song was called Never Learn Not to Love. Both versions are available to listen on Spotify. Really? Yes. So you can yep. hear Charlie Manson singing? Mm-hmm. Cease to Exist by Charles Manson. It's on Jeez. there. And Charles is not credited as the writer on the Beach Boys song because they figured he already got his money from the stuff he stole and damaged during his stay at Dennis Wilson's house. Instead, they credited Dennis Wilson for the song, thinking that maybe he could recoup some of the costs from that little fiasco. Charles was either paid outright for the rights of the song or given a motorcycle. It is debated as to which it was. Uh, And so after, um, so, you know, finally the Manson family got kicked out of Dennis Wilson's house after they, you know, stole and damaged numerous items, including uh, gold records, uh, which they sold. Um, And also one of them crashed Dennis, um, Dennis Wilson's uninsured red convertible, which used to belong to singer Sam Cooke before he was murdered. Not by the Manson family. Sam Cooke murder is like a whole other thing, and I may just do an episode on it. Um, I think you should. So, yeah. After the Manson family got kicked out of Dennis Wilson's house, they had to find a new place to live. And this is kind of where things... This is where, like, the story that most people know kind of starts. So, one of the one of the Manson girls knew somebody who rented a room at the Spawn Movie Ranch. That's S P A H N. That's the last name of the owner. Okay. Um, which was out more out in the country, um, of Los Angeles County, kind of in the middle of nowhere. The Spawn Movie Ranch was a place where westerns were filmed, and they had set it up like an old west town. Mm. Um. Some of the more famous pictures of the Manson family are pictures taken at Spawn Ranch. Um, the owner was an 80-year-old man named George Spawn, and Charlie charmed him and made a good impression, and the Manson family was allowed to stay there. It also helped that Charlie would sometimes um, send some of the women over to entertain Spawn, um, George Spawn, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. The Spawn Ranch is where things went from bad news to just pure evil. Charles had some interesting and racist doomsday beliefs. Um, And that's where the phrase helter-skelter comes in as it pertains to Charles Manson. Helter-skelter was a song by the Beatles uh, who Charles listened to a lot, and he gathered his own interpretations uh, of the music while he was under the influence of acid and meth. So Helter Skelter was the name that Charles gave to the apocalyptic race war between blacks and whites that he felt was imminent. He told his followers that he prophesied that black people in America would rise up and kill all the white people except for the Manson family. And that after they killed all the white people except for the Manson family, um, they, being the black people, 
would not be intelligent enough to survive on their own, according to Charles, and thus they would need a white man to lead them. And that man was Charles Manson, according to Charles Manson. Oh my God. Yeah. And so, people believe racial, this. People yeah, like, they did. Oh my God. They very much trusted in Charles. Um, a lot of these members were very young, 18, 19, 20 years old. They were like, you know, first time on their own, uh, experimenting, learning about themselves and everything. And Charlie was like 32. So he was kind of like an older kind of figurehead. Like he, they just, they trusted him and they, that, that was their leader. It sounds so, like when you're a child and you're taken to church and you're thrown into just a cult and you are just told to believe everything and you don't get a chance to not second guess your beliefs until you're older and you're like, oh, fuck. Well, not only that, but drugs were involved. So mm-hmm. that was the fuel, Yeah, in, I believe. Yeah. Um, racial tensions at the time with all like the civil rights movements in the 60s were already near a boiling point and Charles Manson wanted to instigate it. So here's a little interesting side story. Um, in July of 1969, this is about a month before the murders, the, the Sharon Tate LaBianca murders. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tex Watson was supposed to be selling some drugs to a guy named Bernard Crow, who was known as Lotsa Papa. So, Tex went to Lotsa Papa's apartment in Hollywood to do this drug deal. And he took lots of Papa's money and slipped out the back door and ripped him off and went back to the Spawn Ranch, still having the drugs and also the money. And Charlie learned about this uh, and when Tex got back to the ranch and he was mm-hmm. um, afraid of retaliation because he uh, suspected that lots of Papa was part of the Black Panthers. Um, so Charlie went back to lots of Papa's apartment and shot him with the same gun that was used in the Tate murders in, on Cielo Drive. He ended up surviving being shot because he played dead because he knew that Charlie was crazy and that he'd shoot him again if he knew he was still alive. So lots of Papa was brought into the sentencing hearing after Charles had been, uh, proven guilty and they passed each other in the hall of the LA courthouse um, the first time they'd seen each other since um, Charles thought he had killed him. And Charles said, hey, no hard feelings, man. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> no big yeah. deal. No hard feelings. It's fine. This is fine. Yeah. Honestly, it's fine. <laughs> right. So the first successful murder was committed by Bobby Beausoleil, who was a member of the Manson family, who for a short time, played in the band The Grassroots before he was replaced for allegedly being too young. Uh, Now, The Grassroots, uh, as Nicole knows, I'm sure, was a band that Creed Bratton from The Office was in uh, in the 60s as well, Uh, although Bobby and Creed were never in The Grassroots at the same time. So, it is debated whether or not this was just a straight-up robbery or if this guy... Gary Hinman burned Bobby Boussoulet, um on a mescaline deal 
But either way, Gary Hinman was tied up and tortured in his house. Um, Charles cut Gary Hinman's ear, and the women from the Manson family who were present stitched up his ear with dental floss. Ugh. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, but eventually they killed him by putting a pillow over his head, and Bobby Beausoleil um, stabbed him. Um, they then wrote the words, Political Piggy on the wall using Gary Hinman's blood and signed it with a paw print in an attempt to implicate that the Black Panthers were responsible for his murder. Bobby Beausoleil was arrested a few days later uh, while sleeping in the back seat of Gary Hinman's car that he had stolen after the murder. The knife used in the murder was still in the car and still had blood on it. So, wow, great job. Yeah, good, um, good job there. Right. There is a popular theory, uh, which Charles Manson denies, but it does make sense, that uh, the Tate-LaBianca murders that took place just a few weeks after the murder of Gary Hinman were copycat murders that were meant to, uh, or they were meant to, they were meant to try and get Bobby Beausoleil out of trouble. Like, Mm -hmm. they committed these other murders where victims were stabbed and Pig was written, uh, in the victim's blood while Bobby Beausoleil was in prison for the murder of, of Gary Hinman in order to try and show that Bobby must not be the murderer because these murders with all the same hallmarks are still happening around LA. Yeah. So they committed more murders in an attempt to like exonerate him trying to say like these murders with all, you know, they were stabbed and whatever. So the entire, um, uh, also, the entire summer of 1969, the Manson family participated in what they called creepy crawling, where they would walk around Laurel Canyon and steal jewelry and wallets and rearrange furniture and turn pictures upside down. Um, so not only would you feel completely violated by someone coming into your house and touching all your things and stealing your things, but they would take time to rearrange things and be just creepy as fuck. That's weird. Yeah. Creepy crawling was not enough for them, and they it escalated to murder, culminating in the slaying of an entire household with an encore performance the next night, which I will now tell you about. <laughs> okay. So, on the night of August 8th, uh, 1969, actress Sharon Tate, who was very pregnant at the time, uh, went out to eat with her uh, friends, some of which... Uh, she lived with. Um, so Sharon Tate and her husband, um, director Roman Polanski, who directed Ro- Rosemary's Baby, um, rented a house on Cielo Drive. And when they went to England to the location where Roman was filming, they asked their friends, Abigail Folger, who was a coffee heiress, and her boyfriend, Wojtek Furkowski, who was a... I love that coffee heiress is included in our, um, <laughs> in our podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Folger's coffee. That's oh, funny. Um, so Abigail Folger, um, had a boyfriend who was Wojtek Frykowski and he was a friend of Roman's from their native Poland. Mm-hmm. And they asked, um, this couple, their friends to stay in the house while they were away in England. 
Uh, and Sharon came back to the United States when the time got closer for her to have her baby. Mm-hmm. And Roman stayed in England to finish directing. Uh, and they both felt better about, um, you know, Sharon living with friends rather than living alone in her condition. Mm-hmm. Um, so after, uh, another frequent guest of this Yellow Drive uh, house was Jay Sebring, a stylist to the stars including Jim Morrison, Marlon Brando, and Frank Sinatra, to name a few. Um, Jay was Sharon's ex-fiancé and best friend. So Roman and Jay respected each other, and they had a mutual understanding. So, um, that night, Jay Sebring was with Sharon Tate, Abigail Folger, and Wojtek Frykowski at the Mexican restaurant called El Coyote. And the four of them after dinner, went back to the house on Cielo Drive after dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone's got a, like, the, there's so many stories of, like, star, like, people, celebrities that were like, um, I was supposed to be there that night on Cielo yeah. Drive. Like, there was, I was invited to a party there, and I was supposed to go, but I didn't, which was completely untrue. There's lots of rumors like that. Um, Sharon was, like, like nine months pregnant she was very like uncomfortable and cranky and like she just there would not have been a party there yeah um so they went back to the house and meanwhile uh back at the spawn ranch charles manson was waking up susan atkins patricia krenwinkel linda kasabian and tex watson in the middle of the night telling them to dress in all black and he gave them directions to go to Terry Melcher's house. You know, the the producer who blew um, Charles Manson off because he was unimpressed with his musical abilities. So Charles ha- had been to Terry Melcher's house when Dennis Wilson had introduced them mm-hmm. a year prior. Um, and at that time, Terry Melcher lived at the Cielo Drive house with his girlfriend, Candace Bergen, uh, a.k.a. Murphy Brown you remember that show i do um so that house that terry melcher used to rent was now the house that sharon tate was renting so that's how charles picked that house as a target so he actually already knew that terry melcher no longer resided there because in march of 1969 months before he had shown up at the uh, former house of terry melcher on cielo drive he was greeted by Sharon Tate's personal photographer who told Charles that Terry Melcher didn't live there and it was now the Polanski residence. But Charles picked that house as a target anyway. He instructed Tex and the three women to kill everyone in that house and everyone else on that street in order to try and bring um, bring on this race war that he had delusions about by making it seem as though black people had committed their crimes. They snorted speed before they took off um, from the Spawn Ranch. And before they drove off the property, Charlie stuck his head in the door of the car and said, make it look witchy. Squish eyeballs on the walls. (laughs) Like, yeah. So they drove out to Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon, and they parked on the side of the street, uh, a little, little bit farther down the street. Just made it look like their car just belonged to some nearby neighbor. Um, yeah. Tex Watson climbed a 
tel- the telephone pole and he cut the phone lines to the house. And after this, he and the three women scaled the fence to get onto the property at Cielo Drive. And uh, the first person that they encountered on the property was, um, it was around midnight. The first person they encountered was Stephen Parent. Tex Watson held out his hand and said halt and then shot him multiple times. Um, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Stephen Parent was a guest of the groundskeeper, William Gerritsen, who was living in the guest house at the back of the property. Um, William Gerritsen and Stephen Parent had just finished drinking a beer together, and okay. Stephen was showing him a clock radio that he wanted to sell, but William um, didn't want to buy it, so he finished up his beer and um, took back his, his radio, and he was walking out to his car to leave when he encountered Tex Watson, who shot him several times. Tex Watson then removed a screen and crawled through uh, a window of the house to, uh, into the dining room and walked to the front door to open it to let in Patricia, Linda, and Susan. Okay. Tex then noticed um, Wojtek Frakowski sleeping on the couch and he kicked him and Wojtek said something like, who the hell are you? And Tex said, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's work. What the? Which is... Yes, which is one of the, it's one of the more, like, famous quotes from this whole case. Yeah. So, um, Tex sent, uh, Susan Atkins through, to go through the house and see who else was there. Uh, as Susan walked down the hall, she walked past Abigail Folger's bedroom, uh, where Abigail was reading on her bed. And she smiled and waved at Abigail, and Abigail smiled and waved back. Uh, and then in the back bedroom, she saw Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring talking. And I'm sure that Abigail just, like, assumed that it was, like, one of Sharon's friends or something like that. So she was not alarmed. Um, and I don't think that Sharon and Jay saw Susan as she was, like, walking through the hall. Uh, so she came back out into the living room to report what she'd seen to Tex and she gave, um, she was given a knife and told to round them all up and bring them all out to the living room. So she did so. And when all, they were all four of them. So it was Wojtek Frakowski who was already in the living room. Susan, uh, or Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring and Abigail Folger. And they all came out to the living room and, Tex told Susan Atkins to um, tie Wojtek Frykowski up with a towel. She tied, she also tied um, a rope around Sharon, Tate, and Jay Sebring's necks. And when Jay objected to this, saying something like, don't do this, can't you see that she's pregnant? Mm-hmm. Tex Watson just shot him. And he, when he slumped <laughs> over, yeah. Um, when he slumped over, Tex um, kicked kicked him in the face over and over and stabbed him seven times. At this point, when this whole scuffle with J.C. Bring was, went on, um, uh, Wojtek Frakowski got loose and he ran out the front door as this was happening and Tex ran after him and tackled him, shot him two times and stabbed him 51 times and he died oh. on the front lawn. Yeah, no shit. Oh my yeah. god. 
Uh, Abigail Folger ran out the side door, and Patricia Krenwinkle ran after her, tackled her outside about 30 or 40 feet away from Wojtek Furkowski, and she was stabbed over 21 times. Sharon Tate was the last to die, which must have been absolutely terrifying for her to hear and see all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, she was still in the house. She was sitting on the end of the couch begging for her baby's life. She was begging them to just take her with and let her have her baby and then kill her. And Susan Atkins told her, look, bitch, I have no mercy for you. And Sharon was then stabbed 16 times. Susan entertained the thought of removing the fetus and presenting him to Charlie as a gift. Uh, If she had done this, the baby may have survived, but both Sharon and her baby, Paul Richard Polanski, who was named after his grandfathers, both died uh, very tragically. Susan uh, Atkins took a washcloth and she used it to smear the word pig in Sharon's blood on the front door. Uh, This door, so this house has been since demolished. Mm -hmm. The address has also been changed. It's still Cielo Drive, but the number's different. Um, In the early 90s, Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails um, lived in in the house before it was demolished, and he recorded there. And before the house was demolished, he took the door that Sharon Tate's blood was written pig on. He took the door and still owns this door. Holy crap. Um, Yeah. So around... Uh, 12.30 or 12.45 a.m. after uh, they left after killing everyone and they used a hose from outside of a neighbor's house down the street to clean the blood off of themselves uh, at the Weber residence. And Mr. Weber saw them uh, using the hose and he yelled at them. Uh, He's like, what are you kids doing? And Tex said, sorry, we didn't mean to wake you. We were just walking through the canyon um, and just wanted to get something to drink. And Mr. Weber saw the car and asked if it was their car, and Tex said, I just told you we were walking. And Mr. Weber said, if that's your car, you better get in it, and you better get the hell out of here. Um, and Miss, Mrs. Weber was screaming out the window to get the license plate number. Um, Tex had trouble starting the car, and Mr. Weber ended up being able to memorize the license plate number and description of the car before they took off which proved to be very, very helpful to the prosecutors in this case. Um, As they were driving, Tex told Linda Kasabian to clean the fingerprints off of the gun and throw it out the window into a wooded area. She threw it out the window in what she thought was a wooded area, but it ended up being the back hill of the Weiss family. So the gun was found on September 1st, so all the crimes happened in... um, uh, in August. So this this gun was found on September 1st by Stephen Weiss, who was a school-aged boy, uh, as he was playing outside in his backyard. Stephen Weiss actually got the reward that was being given um, by Roman Polanski uh, for information leading to arrests. Um, so anyway, back to that night in August. Um, so now it was technically August 9th in the wee hours of the morning. The four killers stopped at a gas station to make sure that they had gotten all the blood off of them, and which I thought was a little bit unwise. Yeah. If they didn't, then people would see blood on them, and they would 
just be in public. I don't know. They weren't the smartest people and they were off, like, they were on drugs. So, yeah. the person who discovered the bodies on Cielo Drive the next morning was the poor maid, uh, Winifred Chapman. Since the phone lines were cut, she had to run to a neighboring house to call for help. The head of Paramount Studios called Roman Polanski in London and told him the terrible news, and he flew home to L.A. immediately. The following night, on August 9th, going into August 10th, Charles Manson drove around with Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Linda Kasabian, Leslie Van Houten, and Stephen Grogan. All, um, they all went out cruising around looking for more victims. They chose the LaBianca house randomly, which was in the Silver Lake area of L.A. Lino LaBianca was the manager of a grocery store, and his wife, Rosemary LaBianca, was a dressmaker who owned her own shop. Coincidentally, Rosemary LaBianca was actually, like, very wealthy. Like, she made some very smart investments, mm -hmm. and... She was actually worth more than Abigail Folger when she died. So, aside from the murder, their their murderers, the last person who saw the LaBiancas alive was the owner of a gas station where they picked up a newspaper. So it was the Sunday edition of the newspaper, and there was a special pullout section about the Tate murders. It, huge, huge news in L.A. Yeah. Um, like, a lot of people at this point, like, didn't even lock their doors. Um, so this was earth-shattering news, and it yeah. was a big deal. So, most likely, Rosemary LaBianca was reading the paper in the car as they drove home to be killed by the same murderers. Charles Manson and Tex Watson went um, into the back of the LaBianca's house, and they tied up the LaBianca's with leather laces that charlie had brought with him and then charles left the house without leaving any fingerprints and the women who had come with linda leslie susan and patricia went into the house and did the actual killing they took rosemary labianca into the bedroom uh and they kept lino labianca in the living room lino labianca was stabbed 13 times and had the word war carved into his abdomen he was also stabbed with a fork, uh, which was found sticking out of his abdomen. Hmm. Uh, Tex Watson had put pillowcases over both Lino and Rosemary LaBianca's heads and tied them with the electrical cords of lamps, with the lamps still attached. Uh, so when Rosemary heard the attack on her husband in the other room, she began swinging her head um, to swing the lamp around, um, just to, like, to try and hit Leslie Van Houten and Patricia Krenwinkel, who were in the bedroom with her. So, Tex Watson went into the bedroom and heard Patricia Krenwinkel, um, stabbing Rosemary while Le Leslie Van Houten held her down. Leslie Van Houten stabbed Rosemary LaBianca in the back, like, 16 times after this, but she was most likely already dead. Rosemary was stabbed a total of 41 times. After the murders, they all took showers at the LaBianca residence, and they ate watermelon, and they left the rinds in the sink, with their thought being that it would help make it look like black people 
did everything. Oh my fucking god. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. They were a very racist white supremacist cult. Yeah. Um, That's putting it so lightly, too. Oh my god. Yeah. So, and they also wrote Helter Skelter on the fridge in blood. Um, Leslie changed out of her bloody clothes and she put on some of Rosemary's clothes. Then they left the house and they hid in some bushes outside of the house, uh, drinking chocolate milk and eating cheese uh, until the sun came up. When they hitchhiked back to the Spawn Ranch, but not before tossing the bayonet as they u- that they used as a murder weapon into a reservoir in the neighborhood. The reason that they had a hitchhike was because Charles Manson, Stephen Grogan, and Linda Kasabian and Susan Atkins had driven to Venice Beach, leaving Tex, Leslie, and Patricia at the La Biancas, where they were showering and eating. So Charles had taken Rosemary LaBianca's wallet from the house um, before he left, and he wanted to wipe it clean of any prints and leave it in a gas station bathroom where he believed a black person would steal it use the credit cards, and then get blamed for the murders of the LaBiancas, and that this would start the war that he had anticipated between the blacks and the whites. So there were three different teams, investigative teams, working on the case, the Gary Hinman case, the Tate case, and the LaBianca case. And it took them a while to piece it all together. The Spahn Ranch was raided on August 16th 1969 six days mm-hmm. after the LaBianca murders and the police still had no idea that they had anything to do with the Tate or LaBianca murders um the warrant that they had to raid Spawn Ranch was for uh suspicions of them running an auto theft ring and due to a technical error on the warrant they were all released from custody oh my god so technical error on the warrant could be the judge didn't that granted the warrant didn't sign it. Um, mm-hmm. Things like that happen. Yeah. I don't know if that's exactly what happened, but yeah, I know that's a thing that can happen. Also, um, let's see. So Charles uh, Charles Manson went looking for somebody to blame for this raid, um, and he had suspicions that Shorty Shea, who was a ranch hand at the Spawn Ranch, had something to do with the warrant being served and the ranch being raided. So Shorty Shea was also trying to get Charles and the Manson family kicked off the Spawn Ranch by trying to convince George Spawn to evict them. Charles Manson was later convicted of killing Shorty Shea along with Stephen Grogan a man, uh, and a man named Bruce Davis. After the raid on Spawn Ranch, a few weeks after the Tate LaBianca murders, the Manson family moved from Spawn Ranch to Barker Ranch out in Death Valley. Since Charles Manson was obsessed uh, with finding hidden meanings in Beatles songs um, and using the Beatles and like the Bible and other works to create his own philosophies, he became interested in comparing the Beatles song Revolution 9 from their self-titled White Album to the Book of Revelations, Chapter 9, which is about the apocalypse. So by the way, Revolution 9 from the White Album is weird as fuck. I'd never heard it before. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's not actually like singing. It's a strange, like atonal 
disjointed musical noise is what I would describe mm. it as with yeah. spoken word audio as well. You can barely understand it. And I looked it up and I, I listened to it on Spotify. Um, yeah. It's, it's really weird. Um, but anyhow, uh, Revolutions chapter 9 in the, in the Bible mentions a bottomless pit. And chapter 21 of Revelations goes on to describe an underground city with no sun or moon. Mm-hmm. Charles knew of a legend from a local native tribe that tells of an underground city in California, and he was convinced that the location of said city was underneath Death Valley. So he and his followers uh, were planning to search for the entrance to the underground city so that they could hide there until helter- the Helter Skelter race war was over. So, I mean, I don't know. They were hiding out at this um, Barker Ranch in Death Valley looking for this entrance to this underground city. Very strange. Um, So, a month later, they were arrested for the murders. Um, I don't want to cover the whole trial in this episode um, because it's already a long thing. But, uh, I mean, it... Just to, like, give you kind of a Reader's Digest version, like, it was a very bizarre trial, and the Manson girls were there, and they would, like, in the courthouse, they would link arms and, like, sing songs and stuff like that, and it was just, it was just all just a circus of strangeness. Yeah. Um, So, Charles Manson was convicted of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder for the deaths of seven people. The prosecution contended that although he never directly ordered the murders specifically, his ideology constituted an overt act of conspiracy. And while I was writing this, in my head popped up Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. The whole conspiracy ideology yeah. thing. Yeah. So, mm, this isn't, like, exactly the same, but it, I, but I feel like it kind of sets a precedent a little bit. It, it does. It really does. <sighs> so, Charles Manson died at the age of 83 at a hospital while serving um, his life sentence at Corcoran Prison. Um, he died of cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm resulting from respiratory failure brought on by colon cancer. And I hope it, I hope he completely just suffered and it was a terrible long death. I hope so too. On November, uh, that was on November 19th, 2000, or yeah, 2017 is when Mm -hmm. he died. Leslie Van Houten is still in prison for life and she has been denied parole 22 times. Susan Atkins died in prison uh, at the age of 61 in 2009. Patricia Krenwinkel is serving a life sentence and has been denied parole at least 14 times. Tex Watson is serving life in prison. He also wrote a book. Uh, Steve Grogan was paroled in 1985 because he cooperated and showed police where Shorty Shea's skeletal remains could be found. Mm-hmm. And he was, um, and also the, the only person who was actually granted immunity was Linda Kasabian, and um, it was because she was a key witness for the prosecution. Um, as I understand it, she was basically just uh, an accessory to murder, but 
definitely not after the fact. She was there as the murders were happening. And she left California after the trial. And that is the Manson murders. That is holy crap. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know I didn't know so much about his childhood and I'm glad that we went through it because I didn't like like you can assume that one had a bad childhood, I guess, when they mm-hmm. do all of that, but wow. Wow. Yeah. And that's your favorite so. your favorite little murder there is is this mm-hmm. one. How did you how did you when were you first um shown or when did you first learn about the Charles Manson murders and what initially made you like be like fascinated by it? Um I think that I first heard about the Manson murders maybe in middle school or high school. Mm-hmm. And I've always been very even before I knew about the Manson murders, I was always like really into like the hippie counterculture. I just thought it was yeah. really cool. And um that aspect of it really drew me to this story. Yeah. Uh and then once I I ha- I've been I've always been into documentaries and stuff and when I was about mm, maybe like 20 years old, I found this DVD. I think it was in like the $5 bin at Walmart. Um mm-hmm. and it was a documentary called The 6 Degrees of Helter Skelter. Okay. And it's by a man named um Scott Michaels and he is like one of my favorite documentarians ever. Um and my research I heavily relied on his documentary because I he's like so into this stuff that like he's not going to present you with anything but the facts and he's done yeah. years of research and digging to find out what's rumor and what's the truth. Yeah. Um and his the documentary is so thorough and like he like gives you like information that like you would never hear anywhere else um and I think that the documentary Six Degrees of Helter Skelter in which I've talked about Scott Michaels before on our podcast um uh I'd love to meet him someday and I'd love to take one of his dearly departed tours in LA um but his documentary I think really um, was what solidified and made me just like obsessed with this case. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I would recommend it to everyone. Um, I think that he sells it on his website and he also has two, um, two, one or two other DVDs of like him basically like going around LA and like telling you like this is where this happened of this see because the whole town is so there's so much history hollywood history and so much drama and like yeah all over la so it's very very yeah. interesting huh. interesting all right well thank you so much we've been waiting i've been waiting for you to do this because we we both have like our cases that we like mm-hmm. so now i want to do richard ramirez yeah Yes. That would probably end up being a two-parter, an actual two-parter. Mm-hmm. Another L.A. case. Yeah. There's so much, so much going on in L.A., especially in that time of, in that time. 
-hmm. We could honestly probably just do an entire season of LA cases, to be honest. Oh, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I didn't, I knew that this would have, if I did it in a one shot, that it would have been a longer episode. I, yeah. So it would have been two shorter, two part episodes. Yeah. I'm into it. Just kept going. So, yeah. I'm into it. Awesome. Well, Stranglers, thank you so much for listening. If you have any um, case ideas that you would like to uh, send this way, email us, contact at Perfect Stranglers, and um, we will chat with you next Thursday. Hi, everyone.